Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Top of the Morning on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Joining us once again for the CIO Strategy Snapshot Conversation, glad to welcome back Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office. Jason, good morning. Welcome back. Happy Monday. Looking forward to the conversation. Hope you enjoyed a nice weekend. Definitely starting to feel like fall here in the New York area. Yes, it feels like summer is over. Um, so good morning, Dan. And yes, it's good to start another, what will likely be another interesting week in the markets. Absolutely. And as we pointed out, there is a bit of a chill in the air. There's also a bit of a chill in the markets to cap off the third quarter of 2022 and the month of September, which, by the way, the worst month for equities since March of 2020. So that was notable. Investors last week were faced with more volatility in the markets. This as equities continue to sell off. We did see bond yields rise. So what were the factors, Jason, that contributed to last week's market turbulence? Well, you could take another week and another new story. And the dominant story for last week, what was going on in the UK, uh, where we saw the markets, uh, or at least the guilt yields rise dramatically. Uh, starting from the prior week, so about 10 days ago, uh, the 10-year yield uh, on their on the 10-year guilt, you know, went up from, you know, about 3.5% to 4.5% in a matter of about three days. Uh, that was all tied to a budget that came out that exceeded expectations in terms of the scope of how much would have to be deficit financed. So if it means deficit financing, you're issuing more bonds at a time that the Bank of England is reducing its bond purchasing and tries to raise interest rates. So kind of at cross purposes, fiscal monetary policy. Uh, so big move higher in, in yields that were being amplified by pension funds that held these guilty bonds uh, for, for the liability purposes. They had used leverage. Now the higher yields were forcing them to sell to kind of create some liquidity. That actually led the Bank of England then to step in and intervene on Wednesday to say, you know, we will temporarily buy some of these gilts to try and stabilize the market, which they did. And now from a high of 4.5%, that 10-year gilt yield is now down to 3.88%. So that big move in the, in the gilt market spilled over into U.S. rates. So we saw rates in the U.S. and the 10-year yield go up um, 30 basis points uh, from about a week ago from like 3.68%. It did breach 4% at some point. Now that 10-year yield is back down to 3.69%. So you've seen a little bit of, well, definitely kind of a full reversal. Similarly, in the currency market, we saw the the pound fall on concerns about, you know, the, the fiscal policies being implemented, The you know, what it means in terms of trying to finance uh, the deficits. So the pound versus the dollar went from as much as like 1 point or uh, 112 to 105, even a little bit lower. Now it's kind of recovered. It's back closer to 112. Again, it's sort of come full cycle, but a lot of volatility. You know, these are kind of moves, certainly in the currency market, that take you know normally weeks or months to play out, uh, not necessarily you know a few days. So it gets to kind of kind of tells you just how much uh, you know the markets have been volatile because particularly with what's happened with the Bank of England. Uh, you know, so the, I think the overall kind of takeaway is so just to reinforce some of the concerns that investors have as central banks globally tighten rates as they do quantitative tightening to reduce their balance sheets, is it exposing some stress points in, across financial markets? And last week it was what these UK pension funds, you know, going forward, it could be something else. There was certainly some speculation over the weekend about, you know, a, a major global investment bank, you know, coming under stress, which I think has been sort of debunked a little bit as we open up today. But it just tells you kind of the jitteriness of, of how the how the markets are, are, are kind of dealing with the stuff. It induces additional concerns on top of high inflation that central banks have to deal with, which is also financial stress. 
So, um, oh. but these have a, have a way of going from a modest problem to something you know, escalating very quickly. The last thing I will just say is that while we focused a lot on that, if you look at the economic data in the U.S. last week, it was fine. I mean, kind of, you know, okay, uh, even exceeded expectations a little bit with jobless claims declining, durable goods were, were, were good. All this led the, the Atlanta Fed waged a GDP tracker for the second or the third quarter to go from about two and a quarter at the start of the week to 2.4% by the end of the week. So it's a volatile series that gets adjusted, but it kind of speaks to the fact that the overall economic resilience in the U.S. is still holding up you know, fairly well. You have to wonder with all of that in mind, Jason, if there is broadening stress in the financial system, what does that mean exactly for the Fed and their course for policy? What could the Fed do right now and how might this current environment at all alter the Fed's policy course? So first off, you know, the Fed has a dual mandate of price stability and full employment, but also as part of their mandate is financial stability. So when you have situations like that happened last week, if it does create broader stress in the global financial system, the Fed would have to potentially intervene. And on Friday, uh, Fed Vice Chair Lyle Brainerd said that while the Fed won't you know, pull back prematurely from tighter rates, it is attentive to financial stability and the risks of global spillovers. Sort of acknowledgement that you're telling the market, like, look, if things get really bad, we will sort of step in and help at least provide perhaps dollar funding or try to stabilize the markets as best they can. That's also what the Bank of England did by saying they will buy gilts. Um, and it only took them buying, you know, a few billion dollars to cause the markets to kind of stabilize. So it doesn't take much, but perhaps as much as just a reminder that, you know, the, the Fed will step in. Now, that said, they don't really want to have to change course. You know, they're in the process of, you know, hiking rate tightening policy to slow the economy to try and bring inflation down. Um, you know, so they're, they're, that's their objective. Um, you know, and they have tools at their disposal they can implement pretty quickly after the past, you know, the pandemic and the, the global financial crisis. So again, they can sort of intervene, you know, as necessary. Uh, and, but the Fed by and large is going to try and ride this out. Like they want to kind of stay the course, not add additional uncertainty and volatility. If the Fed were to pause for some reason on its rate hikes or, you know, indicate they might have to dial back a little bit relative to the current expectations in the market and also what they've laid out at the recent FOMC meeting, it's very likely that's going to be due to financial stress and not because suddenly there's good news on inflation falling. Um, and so if a Fed sort of pause for those reasons is not so good because it's telling you there are problems in the financial system. If they have to pull back while inflation is still high, that kind of just elongates the length of time that problem persists. So while investors are perhaps eager for the Fed to, to pivot, to have a less hawkish tone, they want it because they should want it because economic data is getting better, not because they have to intervene in the financial markets. So the Fed doesn't want to do it, but if necessary, they, they will step up. And just sort of knowing that alone could provide some kind of relief to the markets. And I think we're seeing that a little bit over the, you know, uh, the end of last week and today as well. To your point, Jason, as we're set to kick off trading here in the U.S. in about 15 minutes time, the equity futures are pointing to gains and we're turning the page a bit today. I know today kicks off the fourth quarter of 2022 and all S&P 500 sectors at the moment sitting at least 10% off of their 52-week highs. Do you believe, Jason, equities might be in store for a year-end rally? What might the setup look like for that? What will investors exactly need to see in order to turn more positive as we make our way closer towards year-end? Well, your short-term forecasts are very difficult because a lot of factors could come into play. Um, things can move for reasons that are not tied to any particular fundamental driver. Um, so I think that the safest thing to say is that we're going to get sort of more, more volatility. This environment that we've had for a time period is going to continue. Um, I think, if anything, the risks are probably skewed a little more to the downside 
uh, at least in the very near term, because of those you know liquidity risks or potential for financial stress. And, and given that investors are kind of quite jittery in that regards. But if we start to look at sort of other more fundamental factors and other even technical factors, we can sort of assess like what is the outlook you know over the next you know, three months going into next year to say like how does it overall kind of balance out. Uh, and so on one hand, I think something that, that is favorable is that investor sentiment is incredibly poor right now. Uh, people are very bearish. Positioning is already fairly defensive. There's been a lot of kind of de-risking certainly across, uh, you know, um, hedge funds, you know, systematic strategies that kind of, you know, would use leverage to amplify positions. We've also seen a lot of buying of puts, uh, like downside protection, uh, which means that if people have already de-risked, they can withstand additional sort of negative news or, or, or volatility in the marketplace without having to kind of reduce risk further. On the flip side, if we get sort of good data, good news, that it does create a bit of a potential where like kind of kind of rallying based on, you know, investors kind of you know, buying back similar to what happened in June and going into July and August where position was very uh, negative uh, or defensive sentiment was bearish in June, and that was one of the catalysts why we saw a 17 percentage point rally in the S&P during the summer. It's very unlikely we would get that magnitude uh, of rally at any point this fall, uh, you know, given there's still quite a bit of you know, fundamental overhang. But just from a position perspective, it does provide a bit of kind of asymmetry that maybe reduces some of the downside potential and does create some upside potential. Then if we turn to you know, earnings, uh, they will begin, uh, the third quarter earnings season begin in 12 days. So next Friday, you know, the 14th, we'll get some of the financial institutions reporting. The results could actually be okay. Uh, your comments that we got from you know, companies at various conferences that took place uh, in September across different industries, you know, by and large, the tone was still relatively constructive, not seeing a lot of, of kind of you know, slowdown of activity. We get the one-off companies reporting some challenges, you know, but I think those get a lot of notoriety versus the the overall message seems to be you know, relatively resilient. Uh, we also, you know, when we put the context of the third quarter economic activity, it is you know relatively you know kind of robust or at least you know held steady for the third quarter. And in some ways, it was actually maybe a little bit better in the second quarter because the consumer was regaining some spending power as gas prices fell, as the month-over-month changes in inflation were less than wage growth. So consumers are sort of clawing back a little bit of their spending power, and that should show up in the data. So if that's a, an indication of the macro environment holding up, it should translate into earnings being, again, okay. So much of the focus will be on the guidance going forward. Uh, you know, and there is a possibility that companies could guide significantly lower. But it, it, like the second quarter earnings season in July, that proved to be kind of a bit of a calming to the markets because it wasn't as bad as feared. I think the same thing could play out potentially for the third quarter earnings season, which isn't a catalyst to rally, but it's also a reason to maybe perhaps, you know, some of the downside in the near term might be limited. Uh, and now we're going to also start getting in data beginning today with the ISM index for the manufacturing index for September. We get the September payrolls report on Friday and then CPI on the 13th. So we get another monthly round of data that can again sort of inform where is the economy headed uh, the most important part of this is anything on inflation, on wage growth. There's a lot of pessimism out there, so if any kind of good news, uh, especially about inflation, could be sort of a more catalyst for markets to move higher in the good news versus you know uh, down if it's negative news, given you know where the markets are already pricing. Um, but with that said, we're not going to probably get much change in, change in central bank tone, at least this month, maybe as we move later into the quarter. So I think if you wrap it all up, you you know kind of you know say that. Near term, the systemic concerns can weigh in the markets. Technicals aren't provided a favorable potential backdrop for things to move higher. 
and the earnings and fundamental data, again, can sort of be decent enough that it prevents some, some further downside, at least in the near term, but not enough to provide real upside catalyst um, until we get clear in- indications on the inflation data getting better that could cause central banks to be able to, to dial back at least a little bit of their hiking plans. There's no shortage of near-term headwinds, and from the sounds of it, Jason, there is a sense of pessimism which exists in the markets today. It could be easy to remain on the sidelines during times like these, Talking about positioning a bit, can you remind us, Jason, of the case for not sitting on the sidelines with cash and speak to where you see opportunity, where opportunity can be found in this volatile market? Well, if we start with fixed income, you know, you can get now pretty decent yields by taking uh, you know, relatively little risk by either buying, let's say, two-year treasuries uh, that have, or have relatively little duration risk with yields of over 4%. And even if you go into high-quality you know, you know, corporate debt, you know, investment-grade corporate debt, of short maturity, so you have relatively low credit risk and relatively low interest rate risk, and you can get yields at over 5%. So there are some income opportunities there that you, know, you can get enough you know, kind of carry from it to offset you know, potential risk from spreads wider or from rates going any higher at this point in time. Uh, if we think about uh, you know, inequities, you know, sort of like fixing it, we've had you know, kind of an up in quality or let's call it a defensive bias in our positioning. Um, but if you sort of think about, you know, sort of the opportunities in the marketplace and you don't want to sit on the sidelines, you know, there is value being created as the markets pull back. And you can just look at that by, you know, you know the multiples across different asset classes or different parts of equities. And we go back to, you know, so the opening part of the conversation regarding the U.K., a lot of people want to think, well, why would I want to own U.K. equities right now? And, and the answer for that is, well, because uh, the valuation for U.K. equities is quite cheap. You know, the multiple is less than 10 uh, so they're at levels that you would typically associate with an extreme, you know, financial crisis or, or a, uh, like the pandemic. Um, you know, 70% of UK equities are, you know, um, you know, have the earnings outside of the UK. So as the pound weakens, you just see these companies, you know, revising higher the earnings because, you know, when they convert them from other currencies back into pounds, it just goes higher. So there are you know, situations like that, which you might sort of think, well, I don't want to invest in those markets and those opportunities. But the valuations offer you know, a reasonably compelling story. Uh, and so I think that's, as a long-term investor, if you can kind of look through some of the noise, you're starting to see value created. Um, within the U.S., even large-cap equities, we've had a preference for value stocks versus growth. Part of that is predicated on the fact that growth stocks traded a significant premium to value above the long-term average, which we think will kind of reverse over time, which means value stocks will outperform. Some of that might be because they underperform less or they're down less than growth stocks, as we've seen part of this year. But also, if things, you know, once they improve, there's more scope for, for value stocks to kind of rally kind of more significantly. So some of the things that we like in the marketplace, you know, are reflective of, you know, the macro fundamentals, but also the valuations. Uh, and so if you're looking also for not only tactically, but sort of long-term opportunities, you know, there's value out there that, uh, you know, to be had if you want to do it selectively. And in ways that don't necessarily add a lot of risk, you know, downside risk to your portfolio near term. Well, Jason, a lot is going to play out near term as well as through the balance of the fourth quarter. So thank you for helping us take inventory of what investors face both near and long term, providing some guidance on how to think about positioning in this volatile environment a lot. We will be following up on in conversations to come, though. In the meantime, Jason, wish you a nice week ahead and looking forward to having you back again with us soon. Uh, thank you, Dan. Have a great week. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.